Uh, good evening. We're looking at um, revival, and this is our, the last of the sermons, Bible studies that I've, that I've been thinking about, praying about when it comes to the subject of revival. I trust it's encouraged your hearts as it has mine. The importance of praying for revival and to see you know, God has ordained that the preaching of his word is how he brings in revival. That prayer preaching, we've learned some wonderful truths from the scriptures and it should just bring us to our knees to pray for revival. An awakening and revival. So we come to the last of our studies on this and we're in Isaiah 55. Perhaps you could flick to Isaiah 55 as, as you can. And we're wrapping up this short series and... I thought, it, I thought it important before we move on from the subject of revival and awakening to hear the direct call of God to come to him, to hear God's call to come to him, to be revived, to be renewed, ultimately to be delivered. And as we consider the teaching of what is a familiar chapter to many, I want you to see four things with me. First of all, that this is an urgent invitation that you can see that in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 55 of Isaiah, and then in verses 6 and 7, that God summons us to come to him or to come back to him. So it's an urgent invitation from Almighty God. That's first of all, so it's an urgent invitation. Secondly, it's a precious promise, verses 2 through 5, verses 7 through 9. It is that promise of a full and free and comprehensive salvation. So it's an urgent invitation, it's a precious promise, and thirdly, it's a mighty method that God will use to accomplish his work in our hearts. In verses 10 and 11, how will he fulfil his promise? By what means will he bring it into us into possession of it? He will do so by his effective word. So we have an urgent invitation, and then we have a precious promise, and we have a mighty method and finally, verses 12 and 13, the glorious destiny into which God will one day draw his people. What a wonderful way to describe and to think and to rejoice in this topic of revival. It's an urgent invitation, brothers and sisters. It's a precious promise. It is a mighty method and we have a glorious destiny. Shall we pray together before we come to this last message? God, there are many voices clamouring for our attention. I pray that you give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Isaiah 55, the compassion of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by Wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you, do, that you do not know, and a nation that did not know that you shall run to you. I'll say that again, verse 5. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him 
while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the right unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it give, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Just bear in mind those things, the urgent invitation, a precious promise, a mighty method, and a glorious destiny. And we saw those, even as we read it, we saw the truth of those things. So first of all, this urgent invitation, verses one to three again. If you look at those, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The threefold repetition of the invitation from God to come is a device used to build up intensity. This is a pressing summons. This is an urgent invitation. At the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, the invitation is repeated three more times, though the imperative this time is to listen, to incline your ear, to hear. And actually scholars think that Isaiah is mimicking the cries of street vendors in these opening verses to come and buy. I remember going on holiday to Tunisia, to Egypt, both times fending off a veritable army of street vendors who were hawking their ways. They weren't shy or reserved or introverted, but, you know, like with a gentle smile at a street market store and an invitation, they stayed behind the tables. Not at all. They pursued you. They were in your faces. They were pushing their arms filled with fake Rolexes and they had about 25 football caps on their head, telling you how authentic and original their wares were. And they were most insistent. Well, in Isaiah's oracle, God is speaking to us in that voice, that voice of the street vendor. But he's not selling us cheap imitation material. He's actually, he's actually offering us vital daily truth. Do you see that in the text, in that hot, dusty climate of Isaiah's time and place? Vendors would actually sell clean, cool water. They sold wine and milk. And the difference between these vendors of Isaiah's time and the living almighty God is that the vendors on the street corners were motivated by self-interest. That profit is what gave their cries urgency and insistence. But God is, made, but God is motivated by his interest for our eternal welfare and his urgency is shaped by that overriding concern. But there is still that pleading, urgent, insistent tone in these verses. Come, come, listen to me, incline your ear, hear me. 
And actually the verb in verse 3 translated incline your ear is picturesque. It is colourful. It literally means to stretch your ear. It evokes this sense of straining to hear because the message is so urgent you do not want to miss a single syllable of it. And the problem that God is addressing with this urgent invitation and the reason it is so urgent is clear enough to see in the passage. We'll look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Is that not exactly how we all live, even when we all know better sometimes? We still default to this, do we not? We have this basic hard-to-shake notion that soul satisfaction, that living water, is something that we can obtain by our own ingenuity. Well, we turn to romance or family, to money, to reputation, and then to sinful passions. And then and then and then only to find that the sex and the greed and the power and the attempts to keep up appearances and all the things we thought would satisfy are nothing more than spiritual junk food. Fill you up for a while. They spoil your appetite and shatter the health of your soul. Where is the logic in that? That is what is behind the question of verse 2. Where is your logic in that? What are you doing? Why are you pouring yourself out, your time, your money, your efforts to get all of those things? Some of it good in itself, some of it sinful in itself, but neither can save you. Nothing will satisfy. So often we're like hamsters in a wheel chasing what we can never catch. And God is asking, what possible logic do you have for choosing sin that can never nourish or satisfy? And yet we keep doing it. We keep pursuing it. But look at the text. In contrast, the offer from God is wonderful. God's offer is free. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk, without money, without price. The repetition of the call to buy is intriguing. How do you buy without money and without price? How do you buy what costs nothing? Well, listen to Alec Mortier. And I think he's right on. He said, the thought of purchase is not set aside, even though the gift is free. This is no soup kitchen, even if the clients are beggars. There is a purchase and a price, though not theirs to pay. They bring their poverty to a transaction already completed. In the context in chapters 54 and 55, these two chapters are designed to spell out the consequences of chapter 53. And chapter 53 is God's suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't free. Pardon is not free. Soul satisfaction isn't free. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has paid an advance in full at the cross in the suffering of his beloved son. He has purchased everything your heart needs. It is free to you because it cost him everything. The spiritual junk food on which we spend our labour trying to fulfil our heart's hunger. That will cost us, Isaiah says. If we're not careful, it will cost us our never-dying soul. But the gospel offers for satisfaction, rest, mercy for free, without money and without price. Stop running after what you can only find in Jesus Christ. That is Isaiah's point. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From the mouths of Jesus, come by 
wine and milk without money and without price. You've been looking everywhere else, pursuing everything else. Nothing will satisfy. Only Jesus come to him. It is a free offer. It is a universal offer. Who is invited to come? Everyone who thirsts. A little bit of caution is in order at this point. Isaiah is not saying that only the thirsty are allowed to come. God is not saying I am only talking to the thirsty and that is only some of you. What Jesus said, when Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wasn't saying that only those who feel sufficiently the weariness and heaviness of life without me are warranted or entitled to come to me. Neither Isaiah or Christ are imposing conditions on us as if we have to qualify in order to believe in Jesus by feeling deeply enough a desperate soul thirst or a profound world weariness. Jesus is saying everyone is thirsty whether they realise it or not. So come drink what you most desperately need by coming to Jesus. Jesus is saying everyone is weak and heavy laden whether they realise it or not. So come and find your rest in me. Sin will leave your soul parched and dry. Sin will burden your soul, burden your heart. You are weary and heavy laden. That is the universal human experience. So the offer, the invitation, that urgent invitation to come, find relief is equally universal. The prophet is telling us all that sinners have a right to come to Christ. All sinners are entitled to come. All sinners are invited to come. Are you a sinner? If you are a sinner, you have a right, you're entitled, you're invited to come to Christ. You're being called. So come and eat. Come and drink. Come and be satisfied. Come and rest. Come and live. I don't know whether you ever remember Shrek the sheep. Shrek was a merino sheep from New Zealand who made the international news a few years back for managing to escape his annual shearing by hiding out in the caves for six years. He was determined, apparently, to avoid his shepherds, which he did quite successfully, although he must have been quite miserable as a result, because an average merino sheep's fleece weighs around 10 pounds. When Shrek was caught and shorn, his fleece weighed 10 times that. His fleece contained enough wool to make 20 large men's suits. If you've been avoiding Jesus, the good shepherd, the weight you're carrying is intolerable. So he says to you this evening, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is time to rid yourself of your burden. Well, how do you do that? Suppose I see that I'm being invited to come to Jesus. I know I need him and I want him. How do I get him? How do I come? Look at verses six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is what Isaiah is telling you to do. Turn to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn from sin and self. Seek the Lord. Call on him. Return to him. Turn to Christ. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. 
Turn from your foolish attempts to find what you really need anywhere else other than in him. Repent. That is what it means. And believe. Trust in Jesus, holy and without reserve. Entrust yourself to him. Give up the pursuit of your sinful pleasures. Give up the empty formal religion that you use to solve your conscience. Give up your self-reliance. Give it up. Forsake your way and seek the Lord. Call on him. That is what the text says. Cry to him. Ask him for mercy. Have you done that? Have you asked Jesus for mercy? Have you said, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm guilty, and I'm done now pretending before you and pretending lying to myself about my sin? I know I cannot fix me. I know I cannot change me. When I try and dry, drown it and fill my life with worldly pleasures, I'm left more empty than I was at the beginning. Lord Jesus, forgive me, fill me, satisfy me. Lord Jesus, I need you, save me. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you? If not, today is the day. Right now is the time. Call on him. He will have compassion. Drink and live, he says. Believe, trust me, I will rescue you. There's an urgent invitation and there's a precious promise, secondly. It is expressed in different ways in the text. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food from verse 2. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He will lavish on them his steadfast, sure love for David. And that expression, the sure love of God for David, is worth looking at for a moment scholars agree it's a reference to God's covenant promise made with King David 2 Samuel 7 that his seed David's son would reign on his throne forever and so the scholars the commentators say verse 4 and 5 are talking about David's heir David's son verse 4 tells us that God has appointed David's son to be the king of kings Verse 5 speaks to David's son directly, indicating that people from all the nations will one day be drawn to him. They will run to him because the Lord your God, because of his Holy One, he has glorified you. David's son has been glorified. The promise of life to us was bought and paid for by Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son. And the same son reigns as king of kings and king of kings and lord of lords. He's been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it is his now to give eternal life to us. The covenant love of God is his to bestow. God's steadfast, sure love for David. The nail-pierced hands of our glorified saviour are the hands that dispense the mercy we need. And when verse 7 calls us to repent and turn to the Lord, it says we should do it that he might have compassion on us, that he will abundantly pardon. Here is how you can know for sure that he will when you come to him. It is the same Christ you must go to for soul satisfaction who spread the banquet at his own expense. It's the same Jesus who dispenses the pardon of God for you, who died to provide it. The love that nailed him to the cross is the same love that marks and characterises his reign from heaven's throne. Get yourself to Jesus Christ today. He will have compassion. He will pardon. Why spend money on that which does not satisfy? 
Why keep Jesus at arm's length? Why hang back? Why delay the loving heart of Christ that was pierced at Calvary for you? Now beats incessantly with love for you still. There is an urgent invitation, but there is a precious promise that there is full, free pardon and mercy in Jesus Christ to all who come. Thirdly, the mighty method, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the, in the agrarian economy that Isaiah inhabited, the image of rain nourishing the soul and producing a harvest and a seed for the farmer to sow for the next year's crop was a very important image because it was the one necessity. If the rain failed, the crops failed and people starved. But when the rains came, a good harvest was assured. And God is saying, my word is like the rain that falls. The promise of pardon and mercy and salvation and satisfaction will never fail to produce and harvest. So my word will not return to me empty. Well, maybe you're listening to the reading and the preaching of God's word and it pulls at your heart. It stirs your heart to respond. You've been drawn to answer the summons and invitation. But there is still a nagging voice at the back of your mind that wonders if this is just talk, just words. Well, here is the difference. Here is the difference between the preaching of the gospel and all the pundits and politicians and talking heads out there which vie every day for your attention, who promise the world and never deliver. This is the word of the living God. This is the voice of Jesus Christ. This is the one who said, let there be light. There was light. This is the one who said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. When he says, come to me and I will give you rest, he will give you rest. When he says, come buy, eat without money and without price and be satisfied, he will nourish your heart. He will satisfy your soul. This is the mighty method, the word of God. And fourthly, our glorious destiny. What is waiting if you embrace the call for life now? Have you been wandering for Jesus? He is calling you back. Maybe you've never come to him at all, but he's calling you today. What will the final outcome of coming to Christ be? Verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign. That shall not be cut off. The joy you will taste here when you believe the gospel will one day be full. That is what he's saying. The peace that Jesus gives you now when you believe the gospel will one day be beyond disturbance. And the world itself will be renovated. Mountains and hills and trees that were made to display the glory of God will be seen in a new way and in a new fullness will make his praise glorious so that you with them will bring praise and honour to the Lord who has redeemed you. They will break forth in Isaiah's image into singing and celebration. So remember the curse from Genesis 3. We've been looking at Genesis. I love Genesis. Cursed is the ground. 
that curse, the dreadful consequences of sin, will be undone. Instead of the thorn, the cypress. Instead of the briar, the myrtle. The one who became a curse for us at the cross will at last, on the final glorious day, will have his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying or pain for the former things have passed away. The new world, the new creation, everything right at last. Home is God. God is our home. Who would not want it? What possible logic can you marshal to defend resistance to the love of God in Jesus Christ for you? The hope of glory freely offered to you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come buy wine and milk. The price has been paid at the cross. So come trust in Jesus. No more delay. No more hesitation. Trust yourself to him. He will give you rest. It's an urgent invitation. Will you answer? A precious promise. Will you take hold of that precious promise? That mighty method, the word, will you trust it? And a glorious destiny. I ask you, will you inherit it? I pray so for his name's sake. Amen.